Which countries around the world are welcoming towards crypto and blockchain innovation? How can we help advance these technologies, both home and abroad? That's the mission of Sheila Warren, CEO of the Crypto Council for Innovation. Formerly the head of blockchain at the World Economic Forum, Sheila lives, breathes, eats, and sleeps, unlocking the promise of Web3. Today, we discuss how America is falling behind and reveal which countries are doing a great job of stimulating innovation. As a lawyer, Sheila's got a lot of words, and they're all really smart. So come listen to smart words, dunk on America, and feel optimistic about where things are headed in the brave new blockchain world on episode number 681 of the Bad Crypto Podcast. blockchain blockheads, the nifty nerds, the web three weenies, the metaverse morons, Joel Com and Travis Wright here for another episode of the Bad Crypto Podcast. Hello, Sir Lord Travis. We're the regulation rejects. <laughs> we didn't have an hour. That's a good one. We, we, we have uh, crypto clowns. We got DeFi, DoFi, GameFi, Goobers. That's hey, a good that's one. Right. It's good. Yeah. Well, we'll yeah. just keep adding on the web three weirdos. For all of those things. And this right here, folks, is a really interesting episode because we have Sheila Warren back. Originally, she led blockchain um, regulation and just innovation for the World Economic Forum. She wisened up and it's like, I got to get away from Klaus, this guy. Ah, I don't know that's not the case or not, but she left out. She is now head of the Crypto Innovation Council. And this interview right here is pretty solid, Joel. You're going to want to listen to every last morsel of it. And afterwards, we're going to tell you how you can get an NFT commemorating this episode. So let's listen in. It was just about three years ago that our guest today was last on the show. And at that time, she was the head of blockchain for the World Economic Forum, where she occasionally interface with the Klaus Schwab, you will eat the bugs and you will be happy. And she is now with the Crypto Council for Innovation. She is the CEO and her name is still Sheila Warren. Sheila, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Joel and Travis. Yeah, you, you, you want happy with the idea of eating the bugs, no? <laughs> the time had come for a change. It had been almost five years and I really wanted to be at a place where I could always say what I truly, truly thought, which as you know, I didn't really hesitate to do at the forum. I got a long leash there, but I wanted to be more of an advocate than I felt I was able to be in an organization that was, that's objective. That's actually officially objective. Very nice. Yeah. So now, yeah. so, so this is cool. So you have the crypto, was it cryptoforinnovation.org? Crypto Council for Innovation. It's cryptocouncil.org. Same Twitter handle as I always had at Sheila underscore Warren. Um, but yeah, I've been in this role now for a little over a year and we are an evidence-based advocacy organization um, that's focusing on trying to get sound crypto policy around the world. I mean, really. So it isn't really that different, I think, from what my goals were uh, in previous roles, even predating the forum, um, just trying to get responsible policy in place. But the strategy I can use now is obviously very different. Do, do you feel like your hands were somewhat tied with the WEF where, you know, because what you're trying to do is you're trying to eat an elephant, right? You're, you're monitoring <laughs> and changing policy all around the world. You're not just like, you know, Caitlin Long and saying, all right, let's do Wyoming. Like, let's let's go everywhere. And so yeah. does this offer you more, you know, freedom and liberty to do what you want to do? You know, yes and no, right? Because I think here the connections that I so so that's a really interesting question. I love that you asked that. So the answer is always complicated. And I'm a lawyer by training, so you know I'm never gonna get you give you a yes or no answer. Um, but it is yes and no. It's yes from the standpoint of I truly believe that 
crypto governance, crypto economics, the blockchain are all going to underlie most of our systems moving forward. But I think the connection of other systems is actually even more important now than it ever was. And a lot of crypto folks only want to talk about crypto all the time. That's it, right? So I think the way that we make the case for why crypto is so important, and this has been successful globally, is by connecting it to a variety of other systems, pointing out other uses of the blockchain, pointing out where legacy systems are not really working or where friction is a problem, these kinds of things. And the crypto community doesn't necessarily have appetite for that kind of longer term strategy always. So in a way, and that's very much what the forum focused on, right? They were always like big systems thinking, how do systems work? How are they, you know, but they were maybe less interested in like the crypto part of it. So I've kind of traded one for the other, you know, um, but I am me and that's the way I think. I always think bigger picture, holistic, what's going on with systems, where are we making change? What needs to be fixed? Like all those kinds of things. So I bring all that sensibility to the table. It isn't necessarily always celebrated by folks in crypto the way I wish it were, but I truly believe this is the way that we make the case. And it's the only way I think we're actually going to make the case in a way that's going to be sticky to the people that we're trying to influence, which are policymakers, right? We want them to understand what's at stake here, what's at stake for how many people, how big this community is, how global it is, how many people this innovation is already impacting and can impact going forward. And the only way I think to do that, like I said, is to really connect that to a lot of other things that maybe are outside the tunnel vision of people in crypto. So that, that's a really unique challenge that you have there, right? I watched yeah. some of the, um, you know, the Facebook uh, con congressional hearings that they had. And one of the guys was like, so if I'm on the Facebook, does that mean I'm on the internet? I'm like, wow, these guys are not so bright. And they're the ones that's they're the ones that's legislating and regulating. And I'm hating over here. Well, I'm like, wow, this is bad. Even the thing around TikTok, dude was like, so if I have Wi-Fi on, is TikTok on my internet? And dude, I'm like, wow, dude, what? Like, I think what he meant to say was if I'm on the if you're on my Wi-Fi with TikTok, are you accessing my other devices? But he kind of said it weird. And so it was just a it's like these people are not the most tech savvy in the world. Most of them are attorneys, whereas Congress back in the day used to be, oh, here's some scientists, here's some doctors, here's some attorneys, here's some businessmen. Now it's like 90% attorneys, and most of them have a, a, an additional passport to Israel. So it's like most of these people who are running our things aren't necessarily caring about the U.S. citizen as much as the whole global scene. And so... It seems like they're trying to regulate things in a way that maybe is not good for America long term. Like Joel and I have been talking about this for a long time. You know, I think the next Silicon Valley will not be in America because they're going to leave because they're, they're, they're too strong with the regulations. We, we're already talking, hearing Coinbase saying, hey, we're going to internationally expand. We don't trust being here. Bitrix, we're out. You're American citizen. We're done. Uh, Genesis, uh, uh, Gemini saying the same thing. Hey, we're going to expand internationally. All of these crypto companies are leaving America. How do we solve this? So you raise a lot there, Travis, and I'm going to kind of, I'll give you a couple of my observations over years of being working globally, right? So my last two roles have been extremely global. I've been working all over the world with various governments, various sectors, right? So I worked civil society for a long time. Then I worked with government and industry for a long time. And now I still work with government and industry. And I still have you know, eyes and ears in a lot of places in the world. And there is a uniqueness to the American political system that is not shared in other places, right? So I was on a call just this morning with someone in London who's observing that she is Australian, lives in Britain, but she's like, look, in Britain, like most people in parliament, there's a technical advisor. Maybe they themselves are not computer scientists, but they have like a technical advisor. And that person's job is to kind of go in and figure out like, what is this newfangled technology? You know, what? Of course, not everyone knows everything, but there is an understanding that you need to be getting guidance that you trust from someone who's on your payroll, on your staff, and not just getting it from outside, right? In the American political system, you're right. I mean, I'm a lawyer myself and I love lawyers, but it is a lot of lawyers. And the politics of our system, politics are complicated everywhere in the world. I mean, look no further than the British Parliament to see like bananas activity, right? I mean, this is all over the world. Like politics are politics. What is a politician's goal? It's twofold. It's to get reelected and to do right by their citizens. And doing right by citizens is in service of getting elected. I think a lot of people run for office with very lofty goals and ideas about how much they're going to be able to change and then realize the system makes it very hard to do that. 
So I think that there's there's no understanding of Washington specifically in tech. Like there's just really, really limited understanding, particularly in crypto or in Web3 about like what Washington, how Washington functions, what it is, what people know, what they don't know, et cetera. Uh, and similarly, there isn't the same access to information in Washington, you know, to tech that there is in other countries. And that's just kind of the nature of the beast. But that's not echoed in other places. I mean, the premier of Bermuda is like a CS grad, right? He like codes in his free time. I mean, there's a very different sensibility. In Dubai, like a lot of the sheiks actually like get in there and code. Like they do class, you know, they understand this stuff in a different way. Singapore, you know, uh, Hong Kong, Taiwan, like all over Europe. So we are unique in this way and not in a good way. Now, that being said, that's what the system that we have. The system that we have is the system that we have. And if we want to ensure that this innovation keeps its edge in the United States, we need to work with the people that we have, right? We, there's many people who are out there trying to get a different set of people elected and all of that. And look, that's all well and good. That's not happening for another couple of years. This is a cycle we're in. We have elections on a cycle. There, we're, not, we're not a country that has coups. I mean, thank God, at least not yet, right? Like that's not a thing. So People have to get elected. They get elected by actual citizens. Citizens vote on the things they care about. So it's like, who cares about crypto? People that use crypto. We have to expand that set. And it can't just be people that are like, oh, I have a wallet. And like 10 years ago, well, not 10 years ago, three years ago, I got one NFT because a friend of mine had a party. You know, it has to be people that actually understand what is at stake here and what the broader goals of what we're all trying to do is. And that is not easy. And I think one of the challenges is that United States. Um, this is I'm speaking kind of prior to like CCI and my tenure here and all of that, because um, I wasn't paying a lot of attention to the United States, frankly, in policy. I was looking really at a lot of other parts of the world in my previous role. I wasn't really doing much, if anything, in the United States, to be very clear, right? So, uh, and this, and I, I think there's a lot of credit we owe to folks that were actually paying attention in the U.S. and realizing that someone had to be minding the store. Um, but we were always leading with the technology. Oh, it's so elegant. Oh, it's so complicated. Oh, it's so, you know. Nobody cares, man. Like, nobody cares. What they care about is like, what does it do? What does it do? How does it help? What problem is it solving? What's the use case? Does anybody else care about it, right? So one thing lobbed at people a lot now who are going into Washington talking about crypto is, oh my gosh, well, if crypto mattered, it'd be like chat GPT. Look at chat GPT. Within like five seconds, 10 zillion people were using it for this and that. And it's so, you know, like, well, of course, that's not that's because the technology is not actually that complicated. These are interfaces really simple, right? And you're not asking people to engage in massive change management that's expensive around their back end, which is kind of what you need if you really want to super effectively use a blockchain. But also look at NFTs. Those things went super, super like they went, they got picked up really, really fast, right? As an example. So to some extent, the more complicated in a way the interface on the technology, the harder it is for people to actually engage with it, and the less likely they are to do so. So a bunch of us have been saying for five or six years now, until you get this to be more user-friendly, more obvious, you know, et cetera, you have a, a barrier to engagement with it that you just don't see in something like a chat GPT. But that's being used now as like, quote, evidence that, oh, this stuff can't possibly matter that much because if it did, it would be like chat GPT. It would have gone fully viral like chat GPT, right? And everybody was using it for all kinds of things. Well, so these are the ways in which we don't help ourselves. This is, you know, just more evidence to me that America's kind of screwed. We're, we're culturally screwed. We're creating an idiocracy. There is a handful of people that care enough and understand enough about crypto. But as Travis is right, we've chased innovation offshore. They're going to continue to do so. No matter how the SEC ripple case turns out, you look around the world and you see, you know, they are talking about innovation. I just read today that Zimbabwe is creating a gold-backed you know, crypto of some yeah. kind for better or worse. I, I don't know um, to try to stabilize their incredibly inflated Z Z Zimbabwean dollars, whatever those are yeah. called. They are they called Zimbabwe's? I don't I don't know what they are. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to go got, with no, but I don't know for sure. You, you know, know, I, here, I used to know that. It's CBDCs yeah. that everybody's talking about, which is more control, which is more centralized, which is the very opposite of what crypto was intended to be. So yeah. why would you look at the U.S. anymore except for the creative geniuses that are helping to innovate and then going, well, we can't do this here, so we're going to go over there? I mean, it is like I tweeted. I, tweet, I did two tweets, I think, that went viral. One was on semiconductors and kind of saying the cognitive dissonance, meaning like this is the distortion around watching the U.S. 
like desperately trying to get semiconductor manufacturers back on shore while either passively or actively pushing crypto innovators offshore is like absolutely wild to me, right? I mean, wild because some of the smartest people in the world are crypto engineers. Some of the smartest, most technical people in the entire world. And after they're done with crypto, their minds are not going to, they're going to go on to other things. I don't know what that thing is, but you want those people not here. That's really interesting. Okay. All right. You know, like people are people are people, brilliant people are brilliant people. They're going to go on and do really creative, innovative things in all kinds of spaces and encouraging that innovation to be in a place I think is really powerful. So you're act we're actively watching the UK, Lisbon, you know, other countries be like, come here, please come here. We're going to make it France is like, it's so easy to come here and set up shop. Like we're making it so Dublin. You know, they're all like, just come on over, give it a try. The water's fine, whatever. Right. Like eat the brie. I mean, whatever it is, right. Like they're like, come on over, you know, that's so a great campaign doing that at all. Come, yeah, come, exactly. Come right. We're not doing that eat at all. Brie. Drink the real champagne, forget sparkling wine, come drink champagne. You know, it's the whole thing, right. It's wild. And then the other thing I said was it's almost like we're engaging in reverse brain drain. So, um, in reverse brain drain. So basically, like my parents came here in the 60s under immigration uh, rules that were like, like really offensively designed to only get like highly educated people, you know, from India. And, and that was like, there's a reason that a lot of folks that look like me with my background, one generation removed, are, you know, went to these colleges all because we had super highly educated parents that were selectively chosen from other countries, right? We're almost now doing the opposite. We're like, see ya, bye. You know, it's like, what? And other countries are kind of recognizing that, hey, this strategy really worked for the US for a long time, right? We brought a ton of huge brains, et cetera, et cetera. That kind of thing here under very discriminatory immigration policies. And then we like leverage that and whatever. And then we created this whole H1B. I mean, we could go on about immigration and what a challenge it is. Was but it like discriminatory now, or was it just exclusive because they wanted the smartest people to come over? I think, it, well, you could use, I think those are flip sides of the same thing, right? Well, I don't want the dumbest like, people to come to my country. <laughs> yeah, right? you, I, mean, well, I mean, you don't want that. When you're hiring for a company, you don't go, okay, send me the shittiest person you have and I want to hire them. You, I think yeah. it's about who's allowed to come. You I mean, we can have best. a whole conversation about this. Because then they want to bring their family, right? That's un understandable and important. We made that really complicated, right? So all these things are very disruptive to people and communities. Now we're seeing the opposite. So Biden's new immigration orders are actually saying, and they're being supported by industry, not crypto industry, all over the country are folks who are like, we need labor. We need people to come in and like help us with agriculture, help us with manufacturing, help us with retail. Like we need this labor force desperately. And so now you're seeing the Biden administration with the support of like tremendous support of industry being like, everybody come on over. And it's the exact opposite because we don't have enough folks that are taking the jobs that are at the other end of the pay scale, right? Meanwhile, our technical minds are offshoring. So Electric Capital did this developer report. Um, they do it every year and they're kind of tracking the growth or lack thereof, right, of where development's actually happening, meaning software development, where people are actually submitting code changes on GitHub, where that comes from. And the observation, and you can look this up on their Twitter or on their website or somewhere, I'm sure, is that um, over time, it's less and less in the US. Like it's more and more that these technical com code commits are actually coming from other places. And mm. that is anecdotally observable because people are hiring in other places as well as the technical talent moves. Now, it's not to say that it's not critical. There's Again, I'm a lawyer. So there's a lot of other folks that go into making a business that are not technical. But without that talent, you can't start a tech company without tech talent, right? You can start all kinds of companies, and that's great. But if you want to start a crypto company, you need people that can code, right, in this, like that understand mm -hmm. the blockchain, that can, right? Like that's what you need. And if they're not here, then it's challenging to build a company around them when you're, all your talent is kind of offshore. And yeah. that's what we're seeing happen as the first wave, I think, of these companies starting to move their other talent, their business, their legal, their marketing, their all that stuff, right? Moving that offshore as well. Yeah. Well, there's a great book that I read called The Network State, right? And so it's like we've almost moved beyond the traditional political states and the national borders where we could – Sort of it's like, oh, my people might be some over here, there's some over there, there's some over there, and we're going to be building some awesome thing. But we're we we're kind of aligned, and and national borders don't necessarily matter, right? In the future, it would almost seem like this could be the case. Now, obviously, nationalist is nationalism is pretty strong, 
And here's these imaginary borders that I can't seem to see from space. But it says you can't go past this one or you're bad, right? America seems to have their bottom border just wide open. Anybody can come in they want. However, it's really impossible for people to come in legally, right? Like my girl, my girlfriend, she's Russian. You know how hard it is for her to try to even get, even if we were to get married, it's going to be hard for her to even come over here. And then, as you said, that reverse brain drain, you got these great people that are going elsewhere, building amazing companies, doing amazing stuff. And then here in America, we're almost going to get bypassed it because of some of the reverse brain drain, also the innovation leaving the shore, and then BRICS, right? With, with, with the U.S. dollar seems to be te teetering on the edge of relevancy because all these countries around the world no longer are buying dollars before they're buying oil, right? So now BRICS countries are getting really strong. So it seems to me, and actually I just saw this, this data point uh, late last week, was that BRICS uh, 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 economic-wise is 32-point-something percent of the global GDP, whereas America and the West is only 29% GDP. So the G7 versus BRICS, BRICS is getting stronger, G7 is getting weaker. Like, here we are. This this is where we are in I civilization mean, okay, right well, now. Yeah. Here's the thing. So as somebody who, again, has worked globally, who's got family all over the world, you know, look at the demographics alone, like forget anything about policy and anything else, right? Immigration policy is a giant disaster all over the world. In my, my personal mm -hmm. view, I personally think family reunification is critically important. You can't have a society only made up of one class of person. You can't have just technical people. You can't have just wealthy people. You can't just educate. You have to have all kinds of people to make up a society. That's just a fact. We may like it or not like it and have our political views about it, but that's just reality, right? Like someone's got to do all the things and not everyone's going to mm -hmm. be able to do all the things and people have different skills and talents. So, Everybody's uh, not inherently equal. They have different uh, skills. There, people have different skills way. and talents that are all important and all make right. up a functioning society. Sure. Now, all that being said, look at the demographics. There are some countries where it's getting younger and younger and some people are getting older and older. Okay. That is just a reality as well. Mm -hmm. And so the birth rates and this and that are not equal around the world. So when you look at the biggest markets in the world and where they're up and coming, there's a reason the Chinese and Russians are investing tremendously in Africa, in Latam, in certain countries, in ASEAN, right? There are younger populations there. And in many parts of like the Nordic North or whatever, like the pop, it's, it's either zero or net negative growth. Japan is emblematic of this. They have the biggest issues that they've been dealing with for a lot of time here as well, mm -hmm. right? Like in terms of figuring out like as their population gets older and older, how do they accommodate and adjust their society to accommodate that? They think a lot about mobility and accessibility and other issues, right? Because like they have an older population and you see other parts of the world that are moving there as well. So there is a demographic change that's really coming upon us. The world has never been, it, it, the world is majority minority. If you look at it from a U.S. lens, which I do sometimes and other times not. If you look at this globally, you got to take into consideration just the pure demographics. The other thing you got to take into consideration is how tech forward a lot of different cultures are. You look at Asia, you look at Latam, you look again at Africa. People are super tech forward, right? Like, the U.S. is kind of not. I mean, we're just not at the cutting edge of technology usage. And we pretend we are because it's it's weird that we're not because so much innovation has been based out of Silicon Valley and New York and Texas, a couple of places, right, in the U.S. Mm -hmm. But the reality is that, like, when you go to, like, China or India or Vietnam or Philippines or Colombia, like, it's just a totally different engagement with technology that is much more fluid than we have here in the U.S. Is it because and we focus on the wrong things here? It's like we're so concerned about DEI versus you know, true innovation in some cases, right? It's like that's the most important. Like people will come in, CEO, I'm going to make sure that and then their company falls apart. But they're like, well, we're super inclusive now. So I would actually say it's the exact opposite. I actually think that when you look at the the communities in the United States that are more tech savvy, they're often poorer communities of color. Like those are the folks who embrace crypto the most. You look at the demographics of who owns crypto, it's a bunch of black and brown folk. Like that's who's really embracing crypto. Why is that? Because legacy systems haven't worked for them more than anybody else. So if you just look at the sheer numbers, it's actually the opposite, right? So I actually think that part of the problem in the U.S. is that there hasn't been enough um, user focus on some of these communities that are really inclined to use this stuff. I'll tell you, every single app that I use on a regular basis that was not literally about getting services in the city of San Francisco, okay, <laughs> like whatever, like things that are like literally how to get a thing from a place to a place in the city, 
all of my chat apps, everything, my cousins in India were using it at least a year before any of my friends in the US, at least a year, at least a year, if not two years before. So none of this stuff was new to me because my cousins were like, oh, hey, like boomer, you know, like I'm only a couple (laughs) years older than that, right? Like, hey, boomer, we're using WhatsApp or whatever the hell. And I was like, what the hell is WhatsApp? And they're like, oh, it's this like messaging. And I'm like, what? I'm like, don't you SMS? They're like, who the hell uses SMS? And I was like, what are you talking about? You know, there's just a totally, I don't even know, it's so different and it's so And a lot of black and brown folks, you know, have family in these places, right? Or they have like some connection or they, whatever it is. And so the familiarity, the willingness to kind of give it a try, you're actually finding that in a lot of these communities more than you're finding it in kind of like other parts of the country. Um, And I think that's something that kind of gets missed in this. So, you know, leaving aside all of the sort of internal politics of any company's culture, I feel like part of the challenge has been a lot of these systems were not designed to actually be inclusive enough of communities that would have quickly adopted them. And so they've kind of left those folks out. And then other places where people did have that kind of mindset, it blew up there and then it kind of comes back to the U.S. You know what I'm saying? So that's a very common path. Um, you know, I have a bunch of friends who are like startup founders and whatnot. And I have for like decades here. And a lot of them are like, okay, I'm going to proto in the US and then I'm going to really alpha and like blow the thing up in wherever it is. And it's always Southeast like the Asia country. Is the place it's to definitely do it. yeah, not, it's definitely, right. it's never, ever, ever here. It's right. always somewhere else. It's right? like the last place I, I made that comment recently that it's like, cause I'm working on a project and I was like, you know what? I'm going to launch this thing over in Southeast Asia and then bring it to America like Jimi Hendrix did. Jimi Hendrix was an amazing guitar player. <laughs> he was in America. Nobody cared about him. He went to Britain, became well, awesome. It's and then like he came basketball here. players, right? They go play in like Italy or whatever. And then they come on back. You know, it's kind of like there's just this appetite for, I don't know, stuff that we just don't give credit to other countries for. But there's I... really like this ease of it, you know, and we think just because some of that stuff is developed here, people are trained here at our school or whatever it is. That means that the user base is ready to do it and like we'll just kind of jump it. And we don't really have that. We're kind of a very stodgy culture when it comes to being digital about stuff, right? Like it's really interesting. The other reason why I think you see a lot of this stuff start with gamers, like gamers are definitely more of that kind of mindset, right? They'll try a different thing. They're kind of familiar. They're online and offline. They have that intermediate reality. It's also why like artists and Hollywood, like culture, you know, people like that, like TV, film, you see a lot of the stuff happening there as well. Like adoption of like new cameras often happens with studios in Hollywood, right? In indies, because they're like, oh, we got it. We'll try this new thing. We'll get an, you know, it's, it's, it's never like the random Joe and Jane and whatever randomville, you know, who are doing it. Right? They're like the last, 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 last adopters, right? And our politicians, our that. politicians look at those folks, many of our politicians look at those folks and they think like that is indicative of the broader American society. And it's just, it's kind of not in a way, you know, I, I mean, I hate to say it that way, but it's kind of like, we need to get it together, I think, on multiple axes. And we need to recognize that we are to your, the points I think that you're kind of making more broadly. You know, we're behind a lot of other places in the world on a number of different axes. And so the policy, so to kind of like land this point, policy around crypto in, in, in the United States, and if we're really honest about it, in my opinion, it kind of mirrors American society, right? Like if people don't like you, you don't get good policy. You know what I'm saying? And so it's an interesting kind of time to think about this. Whereas if like it's something people are using all the time, then everyone's like, well, of course we should be thinking about how to, you know, be friendly to it or what, you know, whatever. The, 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 the orientation is completely different and the mindset's completely different when you have a society that is always trying to embrace, you know, that kind of thing and be at that forefront. And I don't know that that is outside of certain pockets in the US, I don't know that that is something I would necessarily say about my country, which I love. And I love, you know, obviously I'm, I'm born and raised Native American, but like, it's just really um, uh, challenging. And I should correct that if you'll let me. Born and raised in America, um, you know, we will American, let you. but it's just we'll allow it. challenging. Politics. <laughs> I'm, I'm not uh, actually Native American. Politics lives downstream of culture and our culture, you know, being led by academia and entertainment, a, uh, you know, there's a lot of bad stuff, it, you know, and of course in the U S starts in California and then it moves across the country and people get so fed up in California that they leave and take the same failed politics that made them leave California to these other states. I hate that we're dunking so much on this country, but let's face it, we're screwed. So, 
unless there's optimistic huge... in that. I mean, I'm I'm an optimist, and you know, you call me crazy, but like, and maybe the part of this is because this is kind of my job is to like to you know, I don't know, save us or whatever. But like, uh, that sounds too lofty and obnoxious. But like, you know, part of us is to kind of help make this case and do some education around this stuff. And, and I think that's possible. I think you can in pockets, but unless we have a massive change, a cleaning house of our government and the the forces that have become so corrupt in America. Um, it's going to be really challenging. So let's take the focus off America. And what I want to hear is some of the amazing things that you're seeing happen. Some of the profound advances that are yeah. taking places. Where are they happening? You know, what's got your attention? You're like this. This is how we need to do it. Yeah. I mean, I think ugh, there's so much happening. That's so exciting. I mean, I think I think that. Well, you know, actually, let, let me let me say this in, in a different way, because I actually want to stay with America for a second. Cause, cause despite, you know, the frame we, we <laughs> the turn this took, I think there is a lot of stuff happening here. I think is really exciting. Right. And that's true in the policy space as well. So like literally today, as the day we're recording rather, um, there are two bills coming up in the California legislature that I think are important and interesting. So one is on how to codify protections, uh, around DAOs. So how can we give DAOs some protection so that people that are engaging in a DAO have a little bit more, you know, understanding of what they are and aren't doing. And we're not like opening up a lot of like um, real estate for like problems to come down the line. I think that's really interesting. Um, there's also some discussion happening on a possible licensing regime in California that is nuanced and complicated, et cetera. But the fact that California is kind of saying we want to be a place where companies have rules and can come and do business, I think is is an interesting sign, right? It's kind of a positive thing. And so despite the fact that at our federal government level, there's a lot of complexity in this current political environment. We have bicameral, we have Republicans and Democrats, you know, anytime you have a split Congress, like not a lot gets done. And that, that has nothing to do with crypto. It's just in general, it's very hard to get legislation passed when you've got, you know, the two parties each having a chamber of Congress, right? I mean, for reasons that are hopefully really obvious. That means a lot of activity is going to the states. And that's really actually very interesting. Because what you're seeing is a bunch of states jockeying to be kind of like the place that a lot of this stuff happens, right? Now, there's a lot of reasons why people start a company in a place, okay? And they have to do with like the labor force, the the labor laws, the, you know, the weather, the, whatever it is, all kinds of things, right? Access to universities and all their family, whatever it is. But I think in crypto, you're going to see folks that actually want to be in places where there are rules that they can then use and kind of say, here are rules that actually do exist. We are going in compliance with these rules. We are working to get, you know, et cetera, right? Whether these things pass, whether we actually support them or not is an open question. You know, it's going through this process right now. People are putting amendments in, fixing things, blah, blah, blah. So there's a long way to go. But the activity at the state level gives me a lot of hope because I do feel like in the absence of uh, federal stuff that there's lots of conversations happening. All it's really important, but I do think the states are 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 getting really um, into this into this business, um, as it were. And then in Europe, uh, just earlier this week, we had the final passage of Mika legislation, markets and crypto assets, and so that is a fairly comprehensive regime. It's not perfect. It's got some challenges, but I would say, I mean, it is. I've been I've been working with slash tracking that thing for like five years. Um, and here's the comedy. I mean, if you think it's hard to get stuff passed in the US, it's like so hard to get stuff passed in Europe. Like the process and bureaucracy is like mind blowing. Ask me how I know. Um, but they got it done and they got it done way, you know, there's way before the US, right? This thing has landed. So now it moves to what's called implementation, which is each country is like, well, now we have these kind this kind of like framework. So what do we do with it? And the internal jockeying is starting. As I mentioned, countries in Europe are like, yes, we want this innovation. We want it to come here. We want the builders. We want all this stuff. And like Europe's not a bad place to live, right? I mean, the food's good. The weather's generally fine. So we're seeing some folks who are talking about this, in fact, very publicly. And some major companies are now saying, oh, we had like an outpost in one of these countries. Now we're kind of thinking about, should we be going bigger in those spaces, right? And it's fascinating watching that happen. So that makes me feel excited. I also think there's a lot happening out of the Gulf. Um, now, the Gulf is often, you know, uh, people, I think, dismiss the Gulf because they're like, oh, you know, there's so much money and they just kind of throw it around and do silly things. But like there's actually a bunch of really interesting things happening, not just out of the UAE, but also like Oman's paying attention for a long time. There's work happening out of um, other countries in the region as well that I think are paying a lot of attention. So that's going to be something to watch. And then, of course, you've got Brazil and Brazil is basically trying to 
establish itself among the BRIC nations as perhaps the one that is not as big of a threat to the United States, <laughs> uh, which Russia and China clearly you know, are. Uh, mm-hmm. And India is kind of in its own head right now. So that's been really interesting to watch as well and some of the work happening there. And again, Brazil is a giant market, right? It's, there's a ton of people in Brazil. It's a huge country. And so there's a lot to be said for how it's going to set the tone across um, South and Central America in terms of you know the work it's going to do. Now, something else I think is really interesting is, of course, Brazil and Lisbon are both Portuguese-speaking countries. Lisbon, as I think you probably are well aware, has become a massive hub for kind of Web3. It basically mm-hmm. has the weather of San Francisco. It's very easy to live there. Uh, it's beautiful country. It's, it's the West Coast city. of Europe. It's the West Coast of it Europe. The West Coast of Europe. It's <clears throat> stunning. It's it's just it's just a lovely it's place. Gorgeous. And yes. so there are so many people that are doing stints there or you know, even moving there, right? Mm-hmm. And for a little while, and some people, of them make it easy to sort of be an immigrant there, right? It's almost like they, they basically created a whole set of process. These, these are I from what I understand are now no longer in play. But the last couple of years during the pandemic, they were kind of like come to Portugal, come and live here. We're going to make it ridiculously super easy to come and do that. And they did. And so I think that there's a lot to be said for tracking uh, that corridor and that relationship. Now it's a fraught relationship between Portugal and Brazil for a variety of reasons, but nevertheless, you're seeing investment in the universities there, right? And when you speak Portuguese, it's not that hard to go down and help with, you know, so all of these corridors I think are really important. Now you mentioned the BRIC countries and I think it's, a lot of folks, I think, underestimate the geopolitics of all this and how important that is. Okay, so you've got um, China and Russia in this. Are they allies? Are they not? What's going on? You know, you had this like thing that um, I saw a bunch of. Well, I got a bunch of texts about it too. Just how about how China is not explicitly, you know, um, they're respecting the the Crimean border, but like kinda and not really, and eh, it's a little awkward. Uh, yeah, I heard some, that one of the guys said, "Yeah, all of the so- former Soviet Union countries aren't completely sovereign." I mean, like, oh my god, yeah, like, well, and that was when... disav- that was of course disavowed by the government. Yeah. So it, it's it's complicated, but there's clearly there's a lot going on there, right? Mm-hmm. And then you've got India. And so one of the things I think I was shocked how underreported this was, but uh, Modi, PM Modi only really had one party that was kind of a balancing force, if you will, which is the Congress party. And so Rahul Gandhi, who was the, you know, uh, totemic head of that party, um, was basically ousted from his position, um, which is bananas. And so now there really isn't any hedge against Modi, who has been in power mm. for a very long time, right? Um, there are accusations that the elections are not fully democratic. All this, I'm, again, mm-hmm. I'm, my knowledge exists. Well, that's, that's the point, conversation worldwide. When you it's wild. It's crazy. wild. So when you look at these giant, powerful countries, nuclear countries, countries with massive populations, young populations, very tech savvy, extremely smart, Absolutely no qualms about doing whatever has to be done very quickly to get policies put in place to make people use tech. Look no further than India and the way they rolled out UPI basically like almost overnight, right? Like all these things just kind of compound the challenges we have. Now, I am not in any way suggesting that the U.S. should turn into some sort of autocracy that's like everyone must use a technology, blah, blah, blah. That's the opposite of what I think any of us want. But when you are functioning in an actual democracy that is a functioning true democracy, it's hard, right? Like it's hard to get consensus on things. It's hard to get agreement on things. It is hard. Part of the beauty of our process to kind of do the flip of everything we've been saying so far is that our process is challenging. And in theory, that should result in better decision-making, but that decision-making can be slower, right? It can be less efficient. It can be all the reasons why we're like centralized intermediaries are really challenging, They put friction into systems, right? Mm -hmm. So in a place like in India or a China where you've got, there's a person who can be like, do this thing and it just happens. You don't really have that that challenge, but that's not the world I think that I want to live in. You know, like I want to have a democracy that is actually pure in some ways and that really reflects the will and views of participants. It's why I'm so into DAOs, right? We want an election, not a selection. And now we're (laughs) to the point where they're saying, oh yeah, you know what? We don't need to debate you guys anymore. And it's like, wow, okay. And like any, so that that's some American pop. I'm not going to go down that. But I did find this chart today that was really interesting, and I can actually put this in the um, the the, uh, the the show notes. Leadership in key technologies is increasingly contested, and it's showing which technologies China's leading mm. in, 
-hmm. and they're leading in advanced batteries and commercial drones. 5G is becoming more contested. U.S. is leading in internet platforms, synthetic biology, fusion energy. Quantum computing is becoming more contested. Biopharmaceuticals is becoming more contested. Mm -hmm. And ones that are contested right now, semiconductors, advanced manufacturing, next-gen networks, and AI between the U.S. and between China. And then the one thing that Europe has is regulation, which is funny because everybody's cracking jokes on Europe because, oh, they just like to regulate things. What are you going to innovate, right? But I didn't see blockchain. I assume blockchain is maybe next-gen networks or internet platforms or something. I don't, I don't necessarily know that. But there's a big divide that's starting to happen with, with these technologies as you know, China and China and BRICS becomes stronger and America and the West become weaker. Like this is an interesting time to be alive for sure. Yeah. I mean, let me tell you a story that really changed my views on regulation. Okay. Cause, cause I was definitely of a mind of like, Oh, you know, I, well, I'm still of this mind. Like I, I call it premature regulation. Like you don't want to regulate something too soon because a, the market's going to like decide a bunch of stuff, you know, and like there, a lot of things are just going to die. So it's like, why? And someone was like, why bother? Right. But also you want to make sure you're regulating something in a very forward thinking way. And that's hard to do. I mean, policy is always going to lag tech innovation. That's just kind of a fact. And tech innovation is getting faster and faster and faster. And policymaking takes time. That's just also fair. So a lot of folks, and we supported this part of what I was doing at the World Economic Forum, was thinking about different mechanisms of policymaking that could accommodate the reality that tech is always going to move faster than policy. So how do you get to a place where you're still keeping consumers safe and you're still protecting innovation? But you're not, you're not just like allowing the Wild West or whatever, but you're saying like within some boundary, there's got to be like something, some things that are just kind of like um, yes and no. Like there's got to be some bright lines, right, to some extent. Anyway, so one of those was kind of this idea of sandboxes. And a sandbox, you know, for those who don't know, is kind of a regulator says, okay, come in, you know, collaborate with us, show us what you're doing. Uh, we're going to give you, you know, some a long leash essentially on stuff. In some cases, there might even be a safe harbor that during the time you're in the sandbox, we're not going to come after you and find whatever it is, right? There's all kinds of ways of setting it up. And I said to a couple of friends of entrepreneurs, hey, sandboxes sound awesome. Don't you want to be in a sandbox? And one of my good friends said to me, she's like, no, I don't want to be in the sandbox. She is excellent. I don't want to be in the effing sandbox, right? Like I want to be absolutely kosher, 100% within the rules. Like I want to come in and have a license. So if I have a license, then I know exactly what's expected of me and I'm not accidentally building on something that's going to evaporate. Because yes, maybe in the sandbox, I don't get like fined or, you know, slap, shackle slapped on me or whatever for doing something that's just natural to my business. But I also don't know if my business is being built on air or quicksand. Like I don't know. Right. Kind of like what Coinbase has been doing. They're like, hey, we're trying like, to be we're trying to, lines, but right. you keep kicking, the, you keep moving the goalposts. So it's like, unless you have that certainty, this is why we talk about a lot about regulatory certainty, right? Regulatory clarity. Unless you know, okay, all well and good, you're not going to get like slapped with a fine or whatever. But like, if the operational cost of transitioning into something else that's that develops because of your goodwill puts you out of business, you're still screwed, right? So the market economics of things like sandboxes don't always make sense. And that's why in the U.S. you hear all this repeated call for regulatory clarity, regulatory clarity. That means clear rules. We understand what does a regulator want from us? What is our reporting requirement? What are our licensing requirements? What are our operational requirements? What are all of these things? And nobody wants to be like too hemmed in and constrained because then you can't innovate. But you want to at least have some sense of what's the operational burden going to be on my business. Because if I don't even, if the answer is like, I don't know, you know, then that might kill my business a couple of years from now. And you're kind of seeing this with some of these folks who are now saying, it looks like it's going to be maybe a couple more years where the U.S. gets rules in place. Aren't I better off spending my money transitioning to an HQ where I know what the rules are and just running as opposed to like waiting around and trying to see and maybe I'm right, maybe I'm wrong. I don't really know. And that's what folks in this industry have been saying for a very long time. So what I love about, just loop all the way back around, about this Dow legislation proposal is that it's provide because we're still early in Dow's, right? So it's providing some of that. It's not saying like, hey, make it up or we'll guess. It's kind of saying like, these are what we think the basic rules are. And so operate in this way. And you're like, great. Okay, that is something I can work with. Now I understand. And what this proposal is actually doing is leveraging existing laws and saying these things make sense uh, in some way, right? So like, let's do that. But then opening them up to say where they don't make sense, let's just kind of modify that. 
So rather than this brand new thing that everyone's like, what the hell is that? It's like, here is a way to leverage something that everybody knows and everyone's like, sure, fine, whatever. And saying, how do we open that up and create a container or some space for the unique properties of a DAO that don't that no one's ever seen before, right? That no one knows how to wrestle with. That's the kind of stuff I think makes a lot of sense. And I'm hopeful that at least some of the governance and those kinds of things will, will be very encouraged to stay onshore in the U.S., even if some of the sort of mechanics around exchanges and things like that, that one piece of our very big ecosystem do wind up moving more offshore. I will willingly join you in optimism because I would love for that to uh, to happen. <laughs> I just say, you know, observing how things have been just it. it thank you for lifting that up there. Yeah, well, we it's like a cycle. That. You caught me on an optimistic day. There's days but that I, I'm I, like, I, I'm uh, curious yeah, you know? <laughs> about I want to know about your day. What it, there's yeah, got to be all kinds of variety. Day. What does a typical day in the life yeah. of Sheila Warren look like? <laughs> oh, Lord. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, I would not necessarily wish a typical day in my life on anyone. Um, but, you know, it's it's a lot. That's why I, I'm up super early because, of course, I'm dealing with like what's happening in Europe. It's happening on the East Coast. I live in California, you know, although I'm traveling all the time. So a typical day when I'm not traveling, which is unusual. Um, is I'm up, I'm kind of doing a lot of reading. I am scrolling through Twitter. We get a lot of our news from Twitter. Let's be real in this industry and in this space. Um, I'm reviewing, you know, bills that might be coming up. I'm like responding, all the stuff you do as a CEO of a company, right? A lot of it is that kind of stuff, but it's also just tracking what's happening on the East Coast and in Europe specifically. Um, then I move into internal kind of team meetings where I'm checking in with my executive team, with other folks. And we've got like, oh, we're commenting on this or moving on this, or we have to make a decision about that or a hire or whatever it is, right? Like business stuff, very typical. I run a small business after all. So very typical small business stuff. Um, I try to reserve time in my day for reading, but these days it's just a lot of talking to reporters, unfortunately, like, I mean, fortunately or unfortunately, and I'm grateful for the opportunity, but it's a lot of press uh, lately because a lot of reporters aren't have a lot of questions and that's global. So I might be talking to somebody in, you know, Hong Kong or in uh, Berlin or in, you know, wherever it is. Right. Um, but also a bunch of folks in the U S as well, just to get a sense of like, you know, what's top of mind or there's stories coming out all the time or trying to kind of make sure we're responsive to that. So I do a lot of that kind of stuff. Um, and then it finally in my afternoon is when I get a little more time to read so that I'm kind of like sitting down and like reading, you know, new things, trying to keep up on the tech, which as you both know, is like almost impossible in this space, right? He's um, got ChatGPT like, just summarizing all your news articles for you. Yeah, so you I, I, not yet, right? It's It's wild. But I feel like that's kind of the, one of the things I'll tell you that's really challenging about this role versus my last role is, you know, part of my job, I think, is to actually have my finger on all those pulses and really be able to synthesize at a different level what's going on, right? Um, and that's why I think I was I was so effective in my last role and why I'm so effective in this one. But that takes time, right? You've got to have the inputs to form those views. And so spending a lot of time reading and really just kind of looking around and looking, reading outside of crypto, by the way, reading on all kinds of other things that are happening. Again, the geopolitics are so important and a lot of folks miss that or they don't, they aren't sophisticated enough and haven't spent enough time thinking about it to understand what these things actually mean, you know? So looking at some of those things, I think is really important for me. Um, talking to a bunch of just contacts in and outside of crypto in broader tech and fintech um, is, is really important as well to get a read on things. Uh, but right now, you know, I mean, let's be real in the United States, you know, we're, we're playing a lot of defense. I mean, people, we are not a popular, you know, industry right now. And a lot of that is due to one particular individual, you know, he who shall not be named, um, et cetera. But like a lot of it is because I think we didn't do a great job. Like I said, with early on with things until mm -hmm. NFTs, honestly, with like things like user interfaces and with things like um, safety and security and prioritizing that and very openly prioritizing that, right? Like, right. So we easy for some people to do rug pulls, right? And it's like that, it's way too easy. Right? Even big, big, big even big yeah. huge things like FTX and that whole scenario where that yep. guy was the guy who was working with the with Gensler and those guys to write yep. the regular really? It's like having the fox writing the rules for the hen house saying, okay, and we're gonna leave the door. I mean, open. look, we we are still dealing with the massive crater that the FTX asteroid like slammed right. into Washington. Okay. And like that is a long process wasn't that understandably steroid so. there it is right F was. yeah exactly right that that is a long process and i think if pe i think people can be as pissed off as they want to be and like i wasn't part of i mean fine yeah it's okay no, you, none of us were in that like group of four people who made those terrible decisions that were sociopathic fine doesn't mm. matter 
right? It doesn't matter. Like at the end of the day, he was showing up. He was showing up in Washington. He was pounding the pavement. He was doing the calls. He was taking the meetings. He was writing the chat. He was doing all that stuff. And, you know, not that many other people were. And so I think a lot of folks, like, they feel burned by that. And that is a very understandable thing. And yeah. so we can be outraged by it and we can, like, you know, we'll pound the pavement. But, like, the bottom line is, like, that's a thing that happened. And it has a massive effect. Like, when I use asteroid and crater, I'm not being hyperbolic. I mean, I'm, oh, you know, sure. <laughs> like, it's a really, really big deal. And you and, know, you know yeah. it would seem to me, Sheila, that if he was really an enemy of the state of having gone through that, if he hadn't gone and pounded the pavement in D.C., he'd, he'd be in prison. Like, he got out of the Bahamas I and immediately, say. four days before Christmas, he was on a first-class flight to go hang out in Palo Alto or wherever his parents live, right? Like, that would not have happened if he had not been pounding the pavement in D.C., paying off all these politicians, frankly. I mean, I have no idea. I I have, I have cannot say that I track criminals and their behavior and how they're treated. You know what I mean? But all I can say is there has certainly been an epidemic, it feels like to me, of like wunderkind, you know, young folks who are making, um, you know, criminal decisions, right? I mean, there's like, there's all of these, like, what were they saying? Like, then the Forbes 30 under 30, it's like some percentage almost like over the last five years, every year has been like criminals. And it's like, what the, you know? So I, I think, look, I think that is far more about how we as a society, like really have this bias towards, you know, youth and energy and all of a sudden that's all well and good. But like, you know, what young people don't have is a fully developed prefrontal cortex. Right. Mm -hmm. And that means you make dumb decisions. I mean, I was once 22 and I was an idiot. Okay. I might have been a very smart idiot on one axis, but I was an idiot, idiot on another axis because I was 22 years old. You know what the hell you're doing? So, but you, you have think this kind you of, do. You, you think, think you absolutely you do. think you do. You self righteousness and beyond. Infallible, yeah. right? Like you truly believe that you are arrogant. You that is called being twenty two years old or what twenty five, right. whatever it is now. Whatever. I am not those things. It's so it's thirty nine now. You tell me, yeah, isn't it? Isn't it? Yeah, fifty five. Whatever it is, right? And so we kind of like celebrate this and we give people prizes and awards and they're so, you know, and in some cases that's absolutely true. In some cases it is nonsense. It is nonsense. The other thing that's happening in our society that if you want to talk about this as well is, you know, we proxy things now. So we're like, oh, because you, you know, um, were on the cover of whatever magazine and because you hang out with so-and-so, you must be a good egg. You must be like a, a brilliant person who does all the, you know, like we have these assumptions and mm -hmm. is anyone actually doing the diligence anymore? I mean, I don't, you know, good point. I try to, but it's like, it's hard. Right. So this mm -hmm. is, the, well, clearly you did it because you showed up on bad crypto. Well, so, here it is. <laughs> again, 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 know, twice, fool, twice. Fool me okay. once, shame on, but here's the, well, this, and, and to get back to that though, this is why I feel so strongly and passionately about our space about DAOs, about on-chain action, about all these things that enable us to hold each other accountable, to create transparency, you know, to do certain things in a way that like the first books written about blockchain were about trust and the erosion of trust in our society. That's only gotten worse, not better, guys, right? right. So here is a proposal to how we can solve not all of that, but at least address it in a more honest way, you know, using some of this revolutionary technology. So like I say, I think we've gotten in our culture, in our government, in our media, in our tech, in our industry, in our funding, in all of these things, you know, we have to question what is real and what is not real. And Amen. so what I love about our space is like, we're trying to make that a, a, an easier, more accurate thing to do. So there you have it. You know, that's kind of my take on these things. It's a long road ahead of us here in the US, but the global scene is very rosy. It is very optimistic. It is very positive. People love the technology. They love the opportunity. They may not fully understand it, but they get that there is something really important happening here. They get how it connects to AI. They get how it connects to AR. Like they understand that, right? And some of that going back in our conversation is because in other places, policymakers tend to be either technically minded or have a tech advisor they trust who's not coming from, you know, some other place. Like they, they that's a person that they know and they trust and whatnot. So that's helpful. Um, we don't have that as much, you know, I think here it's why there are some members of Congress who are technical, who do understand this stuff a lot, who ask very, very sophisticated questions. But there are a lot who they just don't know this stuff. They know other stuff that's really important, too. Right. They know about, I don't know, housing policy or I don't know taxes or wh whatever it is. Right? They know other things. No one can know everything. 
part of our challenge is helping to make the case that this does matter, that it's not that every other country in the world is like full of idiots. It's that they're seeing something that America has become blind to for a variety of reasons. And we need to help pull some of that, you know, um, the layers of, you know, whatever it is away from people and kind of allow them to see what's really going on here. And I take that responsibility extremely seriously. And it's something that I remain hopeful about, even as, you know, I've been saying for a while, no one's waiting for the U.S. to land the plane. Like everyone else, their plane's in flight. They like know where they're going. They're like, these are the rules. You might love them or hate them, but here's what they are. And in the U.S., we're like, roads? Who needs roads? You know, it's, it's just kind of like, it's just crazy. It's it's it's, it's wild. It's wild. I think that is a great place to, uh, to put a period for punctuation on this talk. This is tons of great info. Sheila, where's the best place for people to get in touch with you and, and interact with you, ask questions and learn more? Yeah, come on to Twitter uh, for a while it lasts. <laughs> I'm still findable there. It's at Sheila underscore Warren um, or the Crypto Council. You can always ping us there if you have questions. We have a lot of info on our website, a lot of explainers about how policy is made, including both in Europe and in the US. If you have questions about how does it work, we have explainers there for those who might be interested. And I guarantee you, you'll have something to learn. That's not how you think. <laughs> Thank you so much. I tell you what, if we didn't cut off Sheila, then she just she's like the ever ready bunny. She just keep going and going and going. And the moment we stop, she's like, oh, I got another call. I need to be on. So it's a good, good thing. <laughs> she, that, if you notice near the end of the thing, she was like she kept saying little nuggets. And I was like, there's the end. And then she goes and then do, 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 do. And it's like, oh, it's not. So da, 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 da. I was like, ah, that's the end. That was good. You know, she was not aware last time we had her on the show was in spring, April of 2020 before Blockchain Heroes. And she was not aware that we commemorated uh, her by uh, uh, with a, a hero called the Emissary. This was a hero in our original 50 Blockchain Heroes that was inspired by Sheila Warren. And you got your, your common, your uncommon, your rare, epic, legendary, um, the mythic. mythic. Secrets, the yep. secret smoke. There's the golden, and of course the what do we call the the enchanted? And she also, I forgot, she went on to also be you know in the uh, Upland collectible series because all of the blockchain heroes were made into these Upland um, uh, block explorers. And if you got the mythic, which is the yellow one, you could actually import that into the Upland game and use that block explorer. By the way, had some great conversations recently with Duck from Upland. They, I am convinced they are leading the metaverse right now. Uh, in, in, without me doing my metaverse rant, they are number one. Their vision for what they're doing and where they're going is absolute tops. And if you're not in the Upland game yet, you should be. So Travis had a great idea. What was your great idea? Um, eat corn. Yeah, corn's a great idea. And corn's always a great again, idea. Right? That's a good idea. Uh, you know, I thought, hey, we should probably do an emissary AI version like we've done with the other uh, AI set that we did. We did 36 uh, regular ones, and we had one, one of one of that. Then we dropped another one there of, who was it, Baron somebody? Uh, was Van Hodling. Van Hodling. We did that. Oh, Van so Hodling. For, yep, yep. And yeah, then members we should probably of, do one for the emissary. Yeah, so if you are a bad crypto nifty club member um, and you got to be one pretty quick, I'm not exactly sure what day this episode is dropping, but within a few days of it dropping, um, you have to have one of these bad crypto nifty. Let's just say 72 clubs. hours post this dropping. Ish, ish. I'm going to be on vacation, and it'll do, you know, so don't hold me to an exact 84 date, hours, 102 badcrypto.uncut.network go and get one of these because we drop all kinds of cool stuff i mean take a look here at some of the things that you would have missed there's the van hodling energized variation that you would have gotten for free if you had the bad crypty nifto bad crypty bad crypto nifto <laughs> and there's a, there's a bunch of them that uh you know some of them from cornytopia some of them from other episodes so you'll want to go to badcrypto.uncut.network scroll to the bottom pick up this bad crypto nifty club and we'll make a nifty of the emissary done by ai it'll be super fun we've done over 40 different nfts so far on that so that's pretty cool yeah. so for the cost of 0.002 eth 
all the rest of those are just uh, just part of it. So you get to drop them and get those. But sometimes we'll create multiples. And so we'll drop just a rank. So you don't get every one of them. Sometimes you got to go into the platform and claim them. Like we just had all the people claim Captain Corn, And then we created a whole corny kingdom based on that, which we'll talk about in a future episode. So uh, thank you so much for Sheila for coming on again. This was a really long episode. So we don't want to keep this going on for too long. So what should we tell them here to end it all, Mr. Jordan? Let's do like the Beatles, A Day in the Life, where we'd have an ending uh, stay bad that goes on for like a minute. Okay. So thanks for listening, everybody, and stay bad. Crypto Podcast is a production of Bad Crypto LLC. The content of the show, the videos, and the website is provided for educational, informational, and entertainment purposes only. It's not intended to be and does not constitute financial, investment, or trading advice of any kind. You shouldn't make any decisions as to finances, investing, trading, or anything else based on this information without undertaking independent due diligence and consultation with a professional financial advisor. Please understand that the trading of bitcoins and alternative cryptocurrencies have potential risks involved. Anyone wishing to invest in any of the currencies or tokens mentioned on this podcast should first seek their own independent professional financial advisor. They see can't end on a D, a hard D doesn't keep resonating like a... Sorry. This is all the resonating you get, folks. Suck it. That's really horrible. (laughs) I apologize. Don't suck it.